Well, happy Sabbath. This is the last Sabbath of, the, of 2023. The next time we meet here, it'll be 2024. And, uh, and it's one less year between now and when we can go home. Amen? So I, I th- we have a lot to talk about today. And um, I want to get to it, but I want to introduce it in a way. The title is Futurism versus Historicism, Jesus Weighs In. You're like, really? Jesus is actually going to weigh in? It has this connotation that he's going on the scale to make sure that he fits his weight class, and uh, he's ready to get into the boxing ring to go at it. Um, we'll get to that. There is a reason why I specifically use that word weigh. But to introduce this topic, I was reflecting a little bit, and I'll have to say that, um, you know, growing up, I grew up in the Adventist church. Praise God that I happen to be put into the, the church that I believe is correct and in its doctrines. I didn't have to switch like many of you here today. Um, growing up, though, I knew that there was a difference between what we believe the Seventh-day Adventists and the rest of our Christian brethren, right? And, of course, what was the biggest thing that we all sort of know right from the beginning? We go to church on Saturday. They go to church on Sunday. And that was kind of where we left it, Right? But I started to notice that there was something more about it. And, I, and it happened when we would like watch Christian television, right? Because they would start to talk about things like prophecy and revelation. I started getting excited. Hey, they know about revelation too. And they're interested in it as well. But the conclusions that they came to were completely different. And I didn't pay too much attention as to why they came to those conclusions. I know that the, that the nation of Israel figured in very heavily into what they believed was going to happen in the end times. But I didn't really pay much attention to it. But folks, this year, 2023, we can't ignore it. This has become a front and major issue. And what I want to do today, there's three parts to my talk. The first part of my talk is to explain to you the last 500 years of history and why we are where we are today in terms of the Christian world. We're going to do that very rapidly. So put your seatbelts on. The second part of my talk is going to talk about what we need to do as Seventh-day Adventists to really be able to reach these Christians. Now, should we be reaching out to these Christians? Absolutely. What did Jesus say when he was asked by his own followers about what would the signs of his return be? What did his first words did he say? Do not be deceived. We should take, take a lesson from that because it's very easy to be deceived. And They are reading the same Bible that we are, and they're coming to different conclusions. And so the only way you're going to be able to reach them is not with the spirit of prophecy. Are they going to believe the spirit of prophecy? You can't. And so here we come to this point. How are you going to put forth the Seventh-day Adventist message without using a single word from the spirit of prophecy? The time has come. We need to use the sword of the spirit, which is the what? The word of God but we need to do it in a way that we've never used that sword before, okay? And that's what the second part of my talk is going to be. But guess what? There's a third part of my talk. That's why we have to move quickly this morning, because the third part of the talk is I'm actually going to show you how to do that and put it actually into where the rubber meets the road, because we're actually going to attack the very largest, basically, heresy of the Christian world, in my opinion, which is futurism. We are going to dismantle futurism today on this floor. And actually, I'm not going to do it. The Word of God is going to do it. And who is the Word of God? Jesus. And that's why Jesus is weighing in this morning. Okay? What does it say the Bible is? Is the Bible dead? A dead document? 
It's alive. So, part one. New York Times. This was written this year, October 15. Title, For American Evangelicals Who Back Israel, Neutrality Is Not An Option. Conservative Christians' strong connection to Israel forms the backbone of Republican support and is tied to beliefs about biblical promises and prophecy. It says in the article, American evangelicals are among Israel's most ardent advocates, compelled in part by their interpretation of scripture that says that God's ancient promise to the Jewish people designating the region as their homeland is unbreakable. Some evangelicals also see Israel's existence connected to biblical prophecy about the last days of the world before a divine theocratic kingdom can be established on earth. This is very major stuff, okay? Now, I want to be very clear. I'm not here today to talk about policy of the United States, to talk even whether or not a state of Israel should exist or not. That's not my intent. My intent is to look at the biblical beliefs of our Christian brothers and sisters. And what I'm doing is I may use these things to show how powerful they are. Okay? To show you that, um, do you know that in 1995, we decided in the United States to move the capital of Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Did you know that? It was never done because it, thought, it was thought to be a hindrance to the peace process. Guess who did it? Donald Trump. In 2018, 2020, there was an article. This is what he said. This is what Donald Trump himself said as to why he moved, the, moved it. He says, quote, we moved the capital of Israel to Jerusalem. That's for who? Evangelicals. You know, it's amazing with that. The evangelicals are more excited by this than the Jewish people. It's incredible. Okay? So it shows you. I mean, if you look at the amount of funding that we give outside of the United States to foreign uh, countries, uh, it's not even close. Okay? Again, I am not here to criticize policies here. That's not my intent. Some Christians look at the Bible, and they have their interpretations of the Bible, and this has led them to believe that there are certain candidates that have to be voted into office, and those candidates make policy. Again, I am not here to talk about policy. I am not even here to talk about candidates. That's not my intent, because this is all of the current world which is all going to pass away. Correct? What is the important thing that we need to talk about? What beliefs are. Because those beliefs have eternal consequences. Okay? So um, it's, it's very easy when you get into this kind of discussions for people who disagree with you, and you'll notice this when you go out and talk to people, it's very easy for them to make straw man arguments and to call you anti-Semitic. Let's, let's clear that up. Let's just clear that up right, up right away. First of all, if you're a Christian, it's really difficult to be anti-Semitic, if you truly are a Christian. Why? Because your savior is Jewish. I show you a picture, and for those of you who are listening and can't see this, this is actually a picture of Jesus Christ that Ellen White herself said is the most closely represented to the images that she saw in vision of Jesus Christ. And I point this out because look at the Semitic nature of Jesus in this picture. Do you know that all of us, when we get to heaven, we're not going to have any scars? We're not going to have our earthly bodies anymore. We're going to be transformed. Do you know Jesus keeps his body? He keeps the scars. He stays in that body for the rest of his existence. He chose to do that for us. If you want to look and see what this picture is and you can't see it because you're listening, if you just go into Google and type in Tiberius and then Christ, 
this picture will pop up. The reason why it does is it says that this picture is the only picture that is painted after the likeness, the only known likeness of Christ, which was um, back in Tiberius Caesar's time. I don't know if that's true, but anyhow, I find it very interesting. The second thing is, you know when we get to the new Jerusalem after a thousand years, we're all going to get a ticket. Have you ever gone to a big sporting event? Don't raise your hands. You're not supposed to be going to those. But you get a ticket, and it tells you what gate you're supposed to go into, right? Because that's the gate closest to your seat. Do you know that when we go to the New Jerusalem, we're all going to get a ticket, and on there is going to have, it's going to be printed which gate we go through? Do you know that? Do you know that all 12 of those gates are named after Jewish guys? The disciples. I think that it's going to be a little bit of an insult to me if I get it, you know, I always have issues with faith, right? If, what would happen if you got a ticket and the, the gate that you're supposed to come through is named Thomas? <laughs> you might feel a little bit jaded there, right? No. You'd hope for Peter or John or something. But anyway, you're going to go through one. Let's, hey, I'd take any one of those gates, right? Amen. Amen. Okay. So, so please, let's dispel this. And, and let's also remember that even after Jesus died on the cross, what did Jesus tell his disciples to do to the Jewish people? Do not go to the Gentiles. For three and a half years, preach this message to my people, the Jewish people. So there's a difference between the Jewish people and the Jewish nation. Saying, for one thing, that is the Jewish nation fulfilling Israel and all of prophecy, that's one thing that's completely different than the Jewish people. But nevertheless, we have Christian brothers and sisters who believe that the Jewish nation's promises that Jesus made to them in the Old Testament have not been fulfilled and yet will be fulfilled in specific name. And so we get things like this. The Left Behind series. Yes, that is Nicolas Cage. <laughs> All right? What they believe is that there's going to be seven years of tribulation, and, Jesus, and there's going to be a secret rapture that is going to occur right before these seven years of tribulation. And people who are very good and, and Christian and stuff who are flying planes will be taken up naked, so their clothes will be left behind. That's the telltale sign that they were raptured. The clothes are still there. And planes will be falling out of the sky. Buses will be going over. Um, there's a funny scene in this movie where, like, there's a pastor who didn't get taken, right? He's like, well, what, what's wrong with you? You're a pastor and you didn't get taken. You're still here. Most of his flock get taken, but he's still behind. So this is the kind of stuff that is the result of this type of belief. So the question is, part one, how did we get here? How do we get to this broken road? Well, it all started in the 1500s. Well, maybe even before. And Rome. Rome took on some, uh, let's just say, liberties. You all know about, uh, you know, the, in, the, um, the indulgences and Martin Luther and all of that. So Martin Luther got really irritated, and then he started to read the Bible, and then he started to really realize what was going on with the Catholic Church. And I'm just going to read this to you, because all of this is historicism. Here's Martin Luther. This teaching, the supremacy of the Pope, shows forcefully that the Pope is the very Antichrist who has exalted himself above and opposed himself against Christ, because he will not permit Christians to be saved without his power, which, nevertheless, is nothing, and is neither ordained nor commanded by God. This is Martin Luther. We are here of the conviction that the papacy is the seat of the true and real Antichrist. Personally, I declare that I owe the Pope no other obedience than that to Antichrist. And finally, he says, Already I feel greater liberty in my heart, for at last I know that the Pope is Antichrist and that his throne is, the, is that of Satan himself. Did he mince words? No. 
So he studied this from the Bible. Now, he didn't sort of come up with this on his own because 100 years before that, um, the popes were throwing these names around themselves at each other. There was a period of time where there were two popes back in the 1300s. And you can see here, this is written by um, Jesse Johnson. He says, quote, the idea that the pope as the Antichrist is not unique to Protestants. In fact, for the 40 years where there are two rival popes, both called each other Antichrist. John Wycliffe, you know, the morning star of the Reformation, humorously pointed out that they were both half right. He wrote that they were two halves of Antichrist making up the perfect man of sin between them both. That's historicism. That is believing that the Antichrist is fulfilling not only something that has happened in the past, but also, again, in the future, historicism. What about um, Luther's bud, Philip Melanchthon? Quote, since it is certain that the pontiffs and the monks have forbidden marriage, it is the most manifest and true without any doubt that the Roman pontiff, with his whole order and kingdom, is very Antichrist. Likewise, in 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul clearly states that the man of sin will rule in the church, exalting himself above the worship of God. All right, let's, what about Zwingli? Quote, I know that in the Pope works the might and the power of the devil, that is, the, of the Antichrist. Again, this is historicism. Historicism is pointing the finger at the Roman pontiff. Let's go to France and Switzerland, John Calvin, let my readers understand that I am here combating that opinion with which the Roman Antichrist and his prophets have imbued by the whole world, vis-a-vis that the mass is a work by which the priest who offers Christ and the others who obtain oblation receive him gain merit with God, the institutes of the Christian religion on the popish mass. He also says it would be equivalent to Antichrist for anyone to make a bishop to be an intercessor between God and man. Okay? How about John Knox? Remember John Knox? This is the same John Knox that Queen Mary of Scotland says, I fare the prayers of John Knox. More than all the assemblies, all the armies assembled in Europe. Okay, she was, she was true. He says, the Pope is the very Antichrist, the son of perdition of whom Paul speaks. Okay, this is not just individuals, this is whole congregations. The London Confession of Faith in Westminster, that's Westminster Abbey. Use of the identical language, quote, the Pope of Rome is that Antichrist, the man of sin, the son of perdition that exalteth himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God, whom the Lord shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. That is the London Confession. And it is, um, so it just shows you, this was, this was not, this was not uh, rash thinking. This was not extremism. All right, let's move on. Let's, let's look at some more historicism. Cotton Mather, in the Pope of Rome, all of the characteristics of that Antichrist are so marvelously answered that if any who read the scriptures do not see it, there is a marvelous blindness upon them. All right, you, 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 we're getting a little bit more. Uh, here, okay, here's another one. Charles Spurgeon, historicism once again. The Protestantism of England is the paymaster of the Pope. I am ashamed that the sons of reformers should bow themselves before the beast and give so much as a single farthing to the shrine of the devil's firstborn son. Take heed to yourselves, ye Protestants, lest ye be partakers of her plagues. Touch her not, lest ye be defiled. Give her a drachm to her, or a grain of incense to her censers. Ye shall be partakers of her adulteries, and partakers of her plagues. Every time you pass the house of popery, let a cursed light upon her head. Thus saith the Lord, come out of her, my people, that ye not be partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. For her sins have reached unto heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities. It was not pleasant to be 
at the end of these barbs. But I saved the best to last. Are you ready for this? Put your seatbelts on. This is going to blow your minds, okay? Because we all think of Seventh-day Adventists that we're the ones that came up with Saturday and Sunday and the mark of the beast, correct? Watch. Get ready. Thomas Tillam, a minister, prominent preacher at Hexham, north of London, moved to Gloucester and changed worship days from Sunday to Saturday after studying the Bible, was put into the Gloucester Castle Prison, which is where he wrote this book in 1657. 1657, a full 200 years before Ellen White. One of the first authors to identify the mark of the beast as being its change of the seventh-day Sabbath to Sunday. Let me read you some of this excerpts of this book. It's 200 pages long. It's available, if you want to download it, on our web app, correct? Look on our web app, and it's there. Let me read this to you, okay? And just listen to this. This is 1657, the seventh-day Sabbath sought out and celebrated or the saints last design upon the man of sin with their advance of God's first institution to its primitive perfection, being a clear discovery of that black character in the head of the little horn, Daniel 7.25. The change of times and laws with the Christian's glorious conquest over that mark of the beast and the recovery of the long-slighted seventh day to its ancient glory. Thomas Tillam, Minister of the Gospel, 1657. But wait. Get ready for the... I told you to put the seatbelts on. Get ready for the airbag. All right? He goes on in the book. The first royal law that ever Jehovah instituted and for our example celebrated, namely his blessed seventh-day Sabbath, is in these very last days the last great controversy... Let me just take a moment there. Do you know that Ellen White was given light onto what she was to title her book? Could it be that this gentleman writing in prison, we do our best works when we write in prison. I'm sorry to say it. God may put us there. Let me, let me start over. In these very last days become the last great controversy between the saints and the man of sin, the changer of times and laws. Awake ye slumbering virgins. I can't even finish. The fig tree is apparently budded. The signs of his second coming, who is the Lord of the Sabbath, are so fairly visible that although the day and the hour be not known, yet doubtless this generation shall crown obedient saints with everlasting rest. 1657. Think about this. Okay, so this is the castle that he was imprisoned in. This is not the point of my lecture. I'm just, this is a detour, but it's a great detour, isn't it? Do we believe in fables? Not at all. So this is what was going on during the Reformation. There was a lot of heat put on the Catholic Church, and some of their own people were looking into what was going on and asking questions. They had to come up with something. In 1539, Ignatius of Loyola received approval from Pope John Paul III for the establishment of the Society of Jesus, better known as the Jesuits, which formed in accordance with military hierarchy and discipline. This is what he said, Loyola. 
If we wish to proceed in all things, we must hold fast to the following principle. What seems to me white, I will believe black if the hierarchical church so defines. For I must be convinced that in Christ our Lord, the bridegroom and his spouse, the church, only one spirit holds sway, which governs and rules for the salvation of souls. That's great if the church that you belong to is the true church. It's not so if it's the other way. And so we have Francisco Ribera, who is tasked with coming up with an alternative interpretation of the scriptures to somehow deflect. And he comes up with this idea of futurism where, and I, let me say this here because I've been practicing. He wrote in 1590, in sacrum biete eones apostoli evangelistiae apocalypsin commentariae, a commentary on Revelation, 1590 founding futurism. What is futurism? He believed that the Antichrist was not something that was a system in the past, but a man in the future that would persecute and blaspheme the saints of God, rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, abolish the Christian religion, deny Jesus Christ, destroy Rome, be received by the Jews, pretend to be God, kill the two witnesses of God, conquer the world. And to do this, he took the 70-week prophecy. Are you familiar with the 70-week prophecy here? You've got to be. You've got to be. He took that 70th week, split it off, and moved it to some unknown time in the future. Do you know what that 70th week does? It shows the closure of the nation of Israel. When that gets separated off and get put into the future, so do the prophecies that relate to Israel. Are you starting to see this? Okay? This is futurism. And then there was another guy by the name of Manuel Lacunza in the 1700s, who wrote La Vinde de la Messes de la Gloria et Majestad. I know you guys out there who are speaking Spanish or know that I'm killing this. In 1811, he invented the secret rapture along with developing futurism. He held prophetic conferences. Um, sorry. Then the next guy was John Nelson Darby. Have you heard of Darby? Darby was this uh, guy in Scotland. He was the one that founded the Plymouth Brethren. And he takes from Ribera, and he takes from Lacunza, and he comes up with modern-day futurism. He says that he then introduced this now fully developed pre-tribulation, that means Christ comes before the tribulation, rapture, view theory in Europe, and then later in the United States. It was popularized in American by the inclusion in the notes of the Schofield Reference Bible in 1917. Okay, so are you guys familiar with that? The Schofield Reference Bible, okay. Hold on a second. Um, he then, okay, so then, a Schofield Bible in 1917, by the elaborate end-time events chart published in Clarence Larkin's Dispensational Truth in 1918. And so this is where we get modern-day futurism. Now, when it showed up on the scene, it was correctly labeled by Presbyterian minister John Wick as the most dangerous heresy current to be found within Christian circles. In the margins of this Bible were written all of these ideas of futurism. And this Bible was circulated widely in the South. This is what our, this is what our United States looks like today if you ask the question, which is the most popular religion in this area? Okay? Red are the Southern Baptists. They ate up the Schofield Bible. And so Southern Baptists, non-denominationals, evangelicals, they are the ones that eat up futurism in general. 
When you look at the green, those are the Methodists. They sort of sprinkle throughout the Midwest. When you look at the, the orange in the north, those are the Lutherans, typically in Wisconsin and, and Minnesota. Obviously, the gray there in Utah is obviously the Mormon church. And then blue is the sea of Catholicism. Okay, so this is what we're dealing with. And so really what we have today, if you were to go out there, there are two flavors of Christianity outside of the Adventist church that you will find. You will find those that believe in covenant theology, and you will find those that believe in dispensationalism. Dispensationalism is an outgrowth of futurism. And how they divide themselves up is based on this. Covenant theology is very similar to what we believe. We believe that God covenanted with Israel and that they blew it and all of the promises that were given to Israel are now moved along to the current day church. Okay? So we, in, in terms of that understanding of Israel, are very similar to that of covenant theology. Those would be the Presbyterians, the Calvinists, the Lutherans, the Methodists. We came out of that experience. These are the ones that still believe in the Protestant Reformation, okay? in that sense. Whereas the, the non-denominationalists, uh, the Southern Baptists, these are the ones that believe that, no, the promises to Israel still exist and are going, to be get, are going to be promised to Israel in the future. That 70th week got moved to the future. So because of that, they believe, and you can see why, yes, the Sabbath was for the who? The Jews. And so that is a promise that are for the Jews. That's why the Jews keep the Sabbath. But because there's no commandment in the New Testament for us to keep the Sabbath, they say... We don't keep the Sabbath. That's the reason why they're okay eating unclean meat. Those were given to the Jews. Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay. So you're like, oh, wow. So the covenant theology is the good guys, and the dispensationalists are the bad guys. No, 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 no. Every time there's a dichotomy, it's false. There's, there's tons of false dichotomies in our life. And what they do is they, they encourage us to get involved in those dichotomies, so we pick a side. And if we pick a, fault, a side in a false dichotomy, we're always going to be wrong. Because the covenant theologists look at the Old Testament and they say we should not read it literally, we should spiritualize it. So if you want to have somebody on a debate team that's with you in terms of a young earth, 6,000 years, creation in six days, Noah's flood, guess who are you going to find most of your sympathizers? With the covenant theologists or the dispensationalists? The dispensationalists. They believe in a literal reading of the Bible. So, do you understand the difference here? In some respects, Adventist theology agrees with dispensationalism in terms of young earth and reading literally the Bible. But in terms of our covenant theology and understanding that the church today is taking up all the promises that God made to Israel in the past, it's more in line with covenant theology. Do you understand what I'm saying? Do you see how that is so genius if you're the devil? Because you can have this war going back and forth as it is today between academic uh, uh, Christian institutions saying, no, we believe in covenant theology. No, we believe in dispensationalism. Are either, does either side have truth? Yes. Does either side have, have error? Yes. So I won't go through all of this, but covenant theology believes that Israel promises goes to the church. Non-denominational Southern Baptists believe that Israel and the church both have promises to each other. Let's read here. I'll read this right off the chart. 
For covenant theology, they say here that there is no need for a restoration of national Israel since Jesus is the true Israel and the church in Jesus is now Israel. Israel expands to include the Gentile church. We believe that too. Covenant theology, that there is no need of future earthly reign of Jesus since this age is the era of fulfillment and Jesus' reign. This is what covenant theology believes. Dispensationalism believes that there will be a future restoration of national Israel to fulfill God's covenant promises given in the Old Testament. Even though both Israel and the church are part of the people of God, they still remain distinct. That's dispensationalism. Kingdom of Messiah, that there will be a future earthly reign of Jesus to fulfill the promises of Messiah, ruling the nations from the throne of David. And so here's the key point that I want you to understand from this. That dispensationalism cannot exist without futurism. Do you understand why that is? Because if you take that 70th week of Daniel chapter 9 and you move it into the future, that's the way that you fulfill the promises of Israel because they haven't been let go yet. Their, their fulfillment, their 70th week has not come up. We as Adventists believe that the 70th week was fulfilled back here because we're historicists and we believe that the age of the, of the nation of Israel is done and now the people, the, the people of Israel are now grafted in or we're grafted in with them into the church. Does that make sense? Okay. So this is what we believe as Adventists. We believe that the 70th week, 70 weeks began in 457 BC and the 69 week began when Jesus was baptized in AD 27. And that, seven, that last week, that 70th week, which goes from AD 27 to AD 34, in the middle of that week, Jesus died on the cross. Three and a half years before, three and a half years after. And then when, um, what happened in AD 34? Stephen was stoned. That's when Stephen gave that last appeal to the rulers of Israel. And they rejected him. They stoned him. Who was there at that stoning? Paul is perfect. Paul was the one that was chiefly, you guys don't realize this. You kind of gloss over it. Do you know that, that, Paul, that Saul was the one that was chiefly involved with persecution of the Christians? That's why he said, I am the least, because he remembered what he had done. And this is the reason why Christ came to him and says, why are you persecuting me? Why did he say that? Because to those who do it unto the least of these, you are doing it unto me. This is what dispensationalism believes. They believe there's a gap. Jesus dies on the cross, and then there's this gap, this big gap, this, this, the age of the church, they call it, that's why it's called dispensationalism, because it's like a dispenser on a wall. Every time you squirt it, a new thing comes out. So this is a new age. This is the age of the church, and Jesus makes promises with that age of the church that's very different than anything else he's ever done. And then this, this Israel, the nation of Israel dispensation is going to be ended in the future when you have the, the, uh, the pre-tribulation rapture. So here, to put it into perspective... Here is, uh, here is Daniel chapter 9. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon the holy city. To do what? To finish the transgression and to make an end of sin. Seven weeks and threescore weeks. That's 69 weeks. And then what does it say? Then the, print, the people of the prince shall come and destroy the city and the sanctuary. That happened in AD 70. But here's the key. Here's the key. In the midst of that last week, it says, He shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. What happened as soon as Jesus died on the cross and says, it is finished? What happened in the temple? There, the veil was ripped from top to bottom and that was it. Never again was that structure used for the remission of sin. 
And Jesus died in the middle of that last week. And so, in fact, Daniel chapter 9, when he says that in the midst of the week, we believe that the he in red there is who? Jesus. That's not what dispensationalists believe. They believe that that 70th week has been moved off into the future. And do you know who, what they say? They say that an antichrist is going to come and is going to stop the sacrifices in a newly built temple on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. They actually take the action of Jesus Christ and ascribe it to the Antichrist. Do you see how diabolical this is? Okay? Some future date, some boogeyman Antichrist is going to fulfill what Daniel saw in Daniel chapter 9. Do you understand why there is such a fervor to support this country in the Middle East? It's because their entire eschatology is based on this. And so historicism maintains that the 70th week must include the cross. It has to. And futurism believes that that 70th week is some future date with some antichrist backed by the United Nations and, and, the, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the things go on and on and on and on. They believe that there's actually going to be an Armageddon in Israel where the armies of the world will come in backed by the UN. This is what they believe. Okay? So when they see this stuff happening in the news... You both come to the, you're both watching the news and you're like, wow, the end of the world is coming. And they're saying, yep, the end of the world is coming. And you're saying this for completely different reasons. Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay. Now, this is the next point I want you to make and we'll finish with part one. <laughs> you're like, wow, part one. <clears throat> this is written, this is systematic theology. I want you to listen to this very carefully. This is important. While futurism by no means depends on dispensationalism, Yet the assumptions of dispensationalism positively require an exclusive futurism. You cannot have dispensationalism if you don't have futurism. If futurism is basically true, is not basically true, then dispensationalism is overthrown. All hinges on everything being on delay for Israel. Conversely, if anything too substantive was fulfilled at or soon after Christ's first advent, the door is open for the Gentile church into Israel's promises. Do you understand what, I, what he's saying here? If I can show, let me boil it down. If I can show conclusively, without a shadow of a doubt, that that 70th week absolutely has to do with Christ's death on the cross, dispensation crumbles. Does that make sense? Because it shows that the nation of Israel came to an end at the end of AD 34. That's what I intend to do. But I cannot do that using the old techniques. What is this? This is the sword. What is the sword? The Bible, the word of God. Do you see a problem in this picture? Look very carefully. Most of us are right-handed. Only a few of us are left-handed. I have I have very good friends that are left-handed, and this is not meant as disparity. So I'll say the dominant hand, the non-dominant hand. If this person is right-handed, which hand is this sword in? The non-dominant hand. Folks, the time has come to take the sword out of the non-dominant hand and to put it into your real hand and start using the sword as it was intended. 
I am reminded, please, please forgive me, but I'm reminded of a very famous movie that I watched when I was growing up called The Princess's Bride. Have you ever heard of that movie? There's a very famous scene in that movie where these two guys are fighting, and they're fighting for a long time, and he says, uh, but I have a secret. And he says, well, what is that secret? I am not left-handed. And he switches to the right hand, and he starts battling the guy, and he starts winning until um, Ingoyo Montoya is winning, and until the dead pirate Roberts turns around and says, I have some news for you too. He says, what is that? I am not left-handed either. And he switches his hands into the right hand, and the battle goes on. That is the best analogy I could come up with. I apologize. But <laughs> what I'm going to tell you here in part two is how to switch that sword from the left hand to the right hand. So you can actually use the Bible to convince your friends, your, your Christian friends, how to do this. Let's go to the Bible. Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is alive. And active, sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Do you believe that the Bible, even though every word has been read over and over and over and over again for thousands of years, do you think that the Bible today, you can find new information in it that will address problems that come up? I know it's the case, and I'll show you. Listen to what uh, Martin Luther says. He says, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. If anyone knew the Bible, it was him. John Calvin, when the Bible speaks, God speaks. Okay, I can use Ellen White for you guys because you guys believe in Ellen White. I cannot use it on my Christian friends who don't believe in her. What I'm about to do is I'm going to show you that the way that we study the Bible is not enough. It's a new year. You know what that means? I guarantee you someone's going to ask you to join a Bible reading project that will get you through the Bible in a year. Is that the way to study the Bible? It's good. It's surveying the land. But is that how you truly research and study the Bible? I, it took me three years to study the, the, the book of Esther. And in doing so, I was taken all over the word of God to try to figure out the book of Esther. So, what I'm going to show you is I'm going to show you text from Ellen White. I want to make it absolutely, positively, completely clear that Ellen White endorses what I'm about to show you. Okay? So, I'm going to give you a number of slides, but I think it's worth it. Let's read this. This is uh, Testimonies, Volume 5. God has been pleased to give you line upon line and precept upon precept. But there are not many of you that really know what is contained in the testimonies. You are not familiar with the scriptures. If you had made God's word your study with a desire to reach the Bible standard to attain Christian perfection, you would not have needed the testimonies. It is because you have neglected to acquaint yourselves with God's inspired book that he has sought to reach you by simple, direct testimonies calling your attention to the words of inspiration which you've neglected to obey and urging you to fashion your lives in accordance with its pure and elevated teachings. So, does Ellen White believe that we know the Bible? How is it possible that you could read the Bible but not know the Bible? Well, let's find out. She says that our study of the Bible, this is Education 189, the study of the Bible demands our most diligent effort and persevering thought. As the miner digs for the golden treasure in the earth, so earnestly, persistently must we seek for the treasure of God's word. Does that sound like reading a couple of chapters a day? Oh boy. The Bible contains all the principles that men need to understand in order to be fitted either for this life or the one to come. 
and these principles may be understood by all. No one with the spirit to appreciate its teachings can read a single passage from the Bible without gaining from it some helpful thought. But the most valuable teaching of the Bible is not to be gained by occasional or disconnected study. Its great system of truth is not so presented as to be discerned by the hasty or careless reader. Many of its treasures lie far beneath the surface. It can be and can be obtained only by diligent research and continuous effort. The truths that go up to make the great whole must be searched out and gathered up here a little and there a little. When thus searched out and brought together, they will be found to be perfectly fitted one to another. I'm going to show you that today. Each gospel is a supplement to the others, every prophecy an explanation of another, every truth a development of some other truth. The types of the Jewish economy are made plain by the gospel. Every principle in the word of God has its place, every fact its bearing, and the complete structure and design and execution bears testimony to its author. Such a structure, no mind, but that of the infinite could conceive or fashion. We must not think, well, we have all the pillars of our truth. We understand the main pillars of our faith, and we may rest on this knowledge. The truth is an advancing truth, and we must walk in an advancing light. New light will ever be revealed on the divine word. To him who is in living connection with the son of righteousness, let no one come to the conclusion that there is no more truth to be revealed. The diligent, prayerful seeker for truth will find precious rays of light yet to shine forth from the sacred word. Many gems are yet scattered that are to be gathered together to become the what? The property of the remnant people. It's there. It's like a gold mine. And you're just doing the survey every year. If you had a gold mine, wouldn't you like search and dig for the gold rather than just surveying the property? I've got more. By many, man's wisdom is thought to be higher than the wisdom of the divine teacher, and the God's lesson book is looked upon as old-fashioned, stale, uninteresting. But by those that have been vivified by the Holy Spirit, it is not so regarded. They see the priceless treasure and would sell all to buy the field that contains it. Instead of books containing the suppositions of reputedly great authors, they choose the word of him who is the greatest author and the greatest teacher the world has ever known, who gave his life for us that through him we might have everlasting life. Christ is the truth. Listen to this very, very carefully, please. His words are truth, and they have a deeper significance than appears on the surface. All the sayings of Christ have a value beyond their unpretending appearance. Minds that are quickened by the Holy Spirit will discern the value of these sayings. They will discern the precious gems of truth, though these may be buried treasures. I've got a couple more. I want to really make sure that you get the, the full focus of this. Let none think that there's no more knowledge for them to gain. The depth of human intellect may be measured. The works of human authors may be mastered, but the highest, deepest, broadest flight of the imagination cannot find out God. There is an infinity beyond all that we can comprehend. We have only seen the glimmering of divine glory and of infinitude of knowledge and wisdom. We have, as it were, been working on the surface of the mine. When rich golden ore is beneath the surface to reward the one who will dig for it, the shaft must be sunk deeper and yet deeper in the mine, and the result will be glorious treasure. Through a correct faith, divine knowledge will become human knowledge. Two more. 
Let all seek to comprehend the full extent of their powers, the meaning of the word of God. A mere superficial reading of the inspired word will be of little advantage for every statement made in the sacred pages requires thoughtful contemplation. It is true that passages do not require as earnest concentration as do others, for their meaning is more evident, but the student of the word of God should seek to understand the bearing of one passage upon the other until the chain of truth is revealed to his vision. As veins of precious ore are hidden beneath the surface of the earth, so spiritual riches are concealed in the passages of holy writ, and it requires mental effort and prayerful attention to discover the what? Can you say that again? I'm sure there must have been some problem with the the editing typeset here. The what? Wow, that is revelation for some of you. The hidden meaning of the word of God. Let every student who values the heavenly treasure put to the stretch his mental and spiritual powers and sink the shaft deep into the mine of truth that he may obtain the celestial gold, that wisdom which will make him wise unto salvation. This is the last one, I promise. As soon as the seeker for truth opens the Bible to read the utterances of God with reverence, possessing an earnest desire to know what saith the Lord, light and grace will be given him, and he will see wondrous things out of God's law. He will not regard the law of Jehovah as a yoke of bondage, but as the gracious commands of one who is an all-wise and full of compassion. He will make haste to fulfill his requirements. Great truths which have been neglected and unappreciated for ages will be revealed by the Spirit of God, and new meaning will flash out of familiar texts. Every page will be illuminated by the Holy Spirit. You will read passages that you've read a hundred times, and then you will read it again, and you will say, wow, I never saw that. Hopefully you'll see that today. The most precious truths are revealed, and the living oracles are heard by wandering heirs, and the consciences of men are roused to action. All right. Are you ready? Let us do what Ellen White has told us to do. Let us look at the words of Christ. Because Ellen White says that the words of Christ have always have a different meaning below the surface than they're unpretending on the surface. Correct? Let's do it. We've got the Bible, we've got the sword, and it's in the dominant hand. Okay. By the way, this is what I do every month. We have a Bible study. There's a commercial. Okay. Uh, they're not here, but Lance and Shresh, if you guys want to take this picture, this will get you onto a Sanctuary Blueprint Bible study group. For those of you who are listening and can't see this, um, we'll see if we can get it on somewhere else, but you can do it. But we talk about these things where we go under the surface, and if you'd like to join us, we can do that, okay? We talk about the sanctuary, the Passover, the, all the typologies of the uh, wedding. We talk about the body. Do you, do, you, do you see this up here, by the way? Do you know what this is? This is out of a scientific textbook that shows the different uh, compartments of the body. Uh, the blood, the intravascular, the extracellular, and the intracellular. Does anyone see something familiar in this? This is the sanctuary. Do you see that? Okay, this is the kind of stuff that we love to talk about in these Bible studies. All right. Part three. We got 12 minutes. Jesus weighs in on historicism versus futurism. So what I want to show you here is, is kind of like this. Do you see this? Do you guys see like different pictures here? When Jesus records the words and they're put into the Bible, what I'm trying to tell you here is that the words are put in, but they are there for different reasons. Pray that your flight not be 
on the Sabbath or in the winter. Who is he talking to? A lot of people. He's talking to the Jews in Jerusalem. He's talking about us in the latter. The Bible, it's, what, it's like, try to think of it this way. Think about a, a document that you can read perfectly, but then finding out that it's encrypted, and you decrypt it using a key, and there's a completely different message there, but it's using the same characters. Who can do that over centuries and continents? Only Jesus can do that. So what we're going to go to today is this parable of the unforgiving servant. Let's read it. Okay, we're going to read it through, and I'm going to show you that not only is this a parable of Jesus forgiving and telling how to forgive, it's also weighing in on whether it's futurism or historicism, and I'll show you how that is. Okay, here we go. Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how op- So wait, before we do this, let's pray, because we want to make sure that the, that the word of God is with us. Dear Heavenly Father, please come with us now as we open your word, and we're going to study it. Please be in our minds and have, have us to, to see things that we would not normally see. In thy name, amen. Okay, Matthew 18, verse 21. Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times? Because it was the rule was three. Jesus said unto him, here's Jesus' words. What did Ellen White say about Jesus' words? They have different meanings under the surface. He says, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until 70 times seven. What was, the, what was the classical interpretation of that? Oh, it's a lot of times. What's 70 times seven? It's the 70 weeks. Jesus is telling you, I'm about to tell you about the 70 weeks. You didn't see that before, did you? That's why you need to start thinking about these things and start praying and putting these things together. Jesus is saying, I'm going to tell you how to forgive on the surface, but I'm telling you something much deeper in truth underneath that. I'm going to tell you about the 70-week prophecy that came to my servant Daniel in Persia in Daniel chapter, in Daniel chapter 9. Therefore, what is therefore? Therefore is, is a conjunction, which means that what I just told you is connected with what I'm about to tell you. That's the word Therefore. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven, by the way, here it is, here's the, the 70 weeks for those of you who don't know. 70 weeks started in 457 BC and goes all the way out 497 times 70 is 490. We're going to do some math today. And it ends in 34 AD where Stephen is stoned, Paul becomes, Saul becomes Paul, right? And in that last week, that's the 70th week, that's the one that the future is put into the future. We're saying as, as, as historicists that this is right where it belongs and Jesus is right in the middle of that week. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take into account his servants. And when he began to reckon, one was brought unto him, which owed him 10,000 talents. Okay, who's the 10,000 talents? There's only one other place in the Bible that uses the term 10,000 talents of silver. Where is it? It's in Esther. It's about the Jews. And it's right before the 70 weeks begin. So here is, so here it is. So what happens? Remember what happens? Haman wants to sell the Jews. He does it on Nisan 13. It's 10,000 talents that he's going to get. He has to pay to do it. But if he kills all the Jews, he gets to take all of their property to repay himself for that, right? Okay. You're like, well, why would the Jews owe well, in this case, the servant is the, is the Jewish nation. Why would they owe? Well, it wasn't their fault that Haman popped up, was it? Was it the Jews' fault that Haman came along and wanted to do this? Yes, it was. Why was it the Jews' fault? 
Yes, you guys are right. So King Agag, who Saul was supposed to kill, wasn't killed. Samuel had to finish off the job. Somewhere along the line, there was a descendant that survived, and here's Haman now to bother them. Have you ever thought, why does God tell us to completely wipe out these populations in the Old Testament? He's telling you that he cannot tolerate one bit of sin. Because today, it's tolerable, but a million years from now, we're going to turn back into the same problem that we have. So because they didn't get rid of the descendant of one of the guys that they tried to kill, now the entire race is going to be wiped out because of Haman. And it was on the 13th day. What was, what was the day that he did this? The 13th day of the first month. So here we have the deeper meaning in the parable. Here we have the 70 times 7 in the parable. That's exactly related to the 70 times 7 in Daniel chapter 9. We have a king, we have a servant. The servant owes 10,000 talents. Guess what? The children of Israel, the Jews in Persia, owe God, 10,000 talents of silver. Why? Because God saved them through Esther. Are you guys getting this? Okay. But for so much he had not to pay. His Lord commanded him to be sold and his wife and his children and all that he had and payment to be made. Guess what? That's exactly the right of the words out of Esther chapter 3. Because Haman said the same thing. And the letters were sent to the posts of the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, to cause, to perish all Jews, both young and old, little children and women in one day. Jesus knows the book of Esther, and he's basically weaving it into his story. And those of us who understand this and study the Bible will know that that's exactly what's happening. So what do we have? The servant, his wife and his children are to be sold, just like in Israel. They were also to be sold and killed in one day. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. You know what the word there for it, for paying, for worshipping him? It's this word, it's this Greek word, proskenia. I'm not, I'm not a Greek, uh, you can tell, I'm not a Greek scholar here. But proskenia, I don't know. That's what, that's what it looks like to me. It's a very specific Greek word. And it means to do reverence, to homage, kissing the hand, to prostrate themselves, to adore, to worship. This is exactly what Esther said to do to Mordecai in Esther chapter 4. Go gather all the Jews that are present in Shushan and fast. And, and, and we will fast likewise. It doesn't say prayer or God anywhere in the book of Esther. But if you read in Ellen White, guess what Ellen White says in Special Testimony Series B, 15, 1 and 2. Through Esther the queen, the Lord accomplished a mighty deliverance for his people at a time when it seemed that no power could save them. Esther and the woman associated with her by fasting and praying. And prompt action met the issue and brought salvation to their people. So what do we have? We have the servant in the parable, bowing down and worshiping the king, just like Esther and the rest of those in Shushan did in Israel. Do you see this? This is, this is, we're now using the sword in the dominant hand. We're not just reading, we're comparing, we're looking. Why did they use that number? This is the reason why I love the King James Bible, because in the King James Bible, they don't mess up the numbers. The numbers mean things. If you want to truly study the Bible, use a version of the Bible. I don't care which version you use. Just make sure you've got the same numbers in there because those numbers relate to other things. They're footnotes for you to pick up somewhere else in the Bible. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him the debt. The Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him the debt. Okay, so Jesus starts off this whole thing by saying, how many times should you forgive? 70 times 7. Guess when the forgiveness begins? 457 BC. And here we start. 
Forgiveness begins for the king and the servant. Forgiveness begins for Israel and the king of, this, and the, king of the universe in 457 BC. Now let's keep moving. But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him a hundred pence and laid hands on him and took him by the throat saying, pay me what thou owest. This was 500 years later that the very descendants of those that went back and rebuilt the city of Jerusalem in 457 BC now nailed Jesus Christ to the cross. 500 years later, what does it say in the Bible? A thousand years is like a day and a day is like a So this is basically for Jesus, this is like later that day, (laughs) right? You've seen that meme, right? A few moments later, right? Yeah, yeah, you've seen that, right? Okay, this is like Jesus telling the story. A few years, a few hours later, the very people that he forgave now go ahead and nail nail his son to the cross. So what happens? The fellow servant are the Christians. If you have done it unto me, You've done it unto the least of me. You've done it unto me. It's the same thing. And, and the fellow servant owed how much? A hundred pence. Keep that in mind. Do you think that number means something? Do you think it's just there? to just make it up? A hundred pence? Or do you think it means something? Ellen White says that every fact has its bearing. Every word is, a, is everything is related to everything else. What did the Christians owe Israel? Nothing. Not I'm aware of, but we'll get to that. So it's a little bit of an interesting thing. We'll just put a minder there. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Guess what? That word besought is a different word than the Greek word that we were reviewing before. The Greek word that we were reviewing before is to bow down and worship. This word is to call for, to invite, to call upon, to exhort, to admonish, to persuade Were the Christians trying to persuade the Jews after the death of Jesus Christ on the cross? Yes. That's exactly what they were trying to do. They were trying to persuade them to accept the payments that Jesus had made for them on the? Did Jesus pay it all? What did he say? What did the fellow servant said? I will pay thee all. It's, gonna, it's amazing. So the word there is parekele. That's to admonish. It's a completely different Greek word. But in our, in our thing here, it fits perfectly. So we say that that is the cross. That interaction between the fellow servant and the servant has to do with the cross. So, and he would not, but went and cast him into prison until he should pay the debt. What did the Jews do to the Christians after the cross? They grabbed them, and what did they do to them? They put them in prison. Wow. Who's this? That's Saul on the road to Damascus. It came to a pinnacle at the conclusion of the 70th week in 34 AD. The final declaration of Stephen in Acts 7, 52 to 53. And now you have betrayed and murdered him, he says. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. In other words, they did not receive payment. While he spoke, there was one who held onto the coats. It was Saul. This is Acts chapter 7, verse 58. Who was just one of the many in Jerusalem who had persecuted the Christians. The Jewish nation refused to accept the payment of Christ's death on the cross. A death worth how much? How much was Jesus' death on the cross worth? 30 pieces of silver. Put that away. They behaved much like the servant in the parable did towards the fellow servant. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat saying, pay me what thou owest. That's Matthew 18, 28. We just read that. What does it say in Acts 8, 3? 
For as Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committing them to what? Prison. Every word that's coming out of Jesus' mouth in this parable is fulfilling not only what has happened in the past in Persia, but what is about to happen to him and his church in a very simple parable. So fellow servant is in prison, Christian's imprisoned. 30 pieces of silver. Now, Matthew 27. When Judas, who had betrayed him, when he saw he was condemned, repented himself and brought again 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. When Judas regretted what he had done, what did he do with the 30 pieces of silver? Did he try to return it back to the high priests? Did they accept it? Wow. They didn't accept payment. What does it say in Matthew 27? Therefore they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field. And they took the 30 pieces of silver. The price of him was valued. Do you see how, do you see how the Bible is trying to tell you here? The whole, the whole value of this transaction was 30 pieces of silver. Whom they of the children of Israel did value. They're putting together the entire picture for you that the cost to the children of Israel, the nation of Israel, and the 30 pieces of silver, and gave it for the potter's field as the Lord appointed me. This is Matthew. Okay. So when his fellow servants saw what he had done, they were very sorry and came and told the Lord all that was done. And his Lord, after he had called him, said unto him, O wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt because thou desirest me. Shouldest thou not have also compassion on thy fellow servants, even as I have pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the what? tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise, my heavenly father do also unto you. If ye from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother, their trespasses. And we read this all the time. And we say, this story is telling me that I need to forgive people. Otherwise, Jesus is not going to forgive me. And that's absolutely correct on the surface. But there's something deeper below the surface that Christ is addressing. The 70 times seven forgiveness ended for this servant. He was thrown into prison until the tormentors, and were given over to the tormentors until he could fully pay. Guess what happens to the Israel? The 490 year ends, and it ends as a result of the cross. Three and a half years later, this shows that Jesus fervently believes that forgiveness ended for Israel in 34 AD, and therefore Jesus weighs in and is firmly on the side of the historicists and not the futurists. But I will give you even more proof. You say, look at that. And I looked at this when I was looking at this, and I said, wow. I even knew before I checked it out. I said, this is too perfect. The 100 pence has to be equal to 30 pieces of silver. It has to be. If it's not, it's a tragedy. So I started to look. The fellow servant is turned over to the tormentors as the Christian, as, sorry, as the, the, sorry, the servant is turned over to the tormentors as Israel was turned over to the tormentors in 70 AD. Same thing. 100 pence, 30 pieces of silver. Are they the same? <laughs> Are you ready? Put your seatbelts on. Oh, you already have them on. That's right. And the airbags. The parable, 100 pence. So if you actually look up that text in the Bible, the word there is G1220. It's a denarion. It was translated in the King James as a penny because the denarion later became the penny. 
So this is actually 100 denarii. 100 denarii, if you look it up, it was actually devalued over time. But when Jesus gave this parable in the time that he gave it in between 14 AD and 37 AD, one denarii weighed 3.9 grams of silver. Exactly 3.9 grams of silver. So if you have 100 denarii weighing 3.9 grams of silver, how many grams of silver do you have? 390 grams of silver. That is correct. So the total on the left where Jesus is giving the parable is 390 grams of silver. Guess what? In 2008, there was an article written about one of those coins that was used by the priest to sell, to sell Jesus to Judas. It's called a Tyrian shekel. Tyrian shekel was a coin that was minted in Jerusalem under the guise of Tyre, and it had the highest concentration of silver. And it's also the same coin that was used to pay the temple tax when Peter went out and found the fish. It was a half shekel, so you, one coin could pay for two people. This is what it says in the article. This is actually by the Antiquities Association uh, in Israel. They said here that the shekel, this was actually found in the temple period in one of the drainage ditches right outside the temple. So this is as close as we can get, not only in place, but in time to Jesus Christ. They picked up the coin. They looked at it. They show you a picture of it. I've got a picture of it right there. You can see the coin right there. It actually has the image of Baal on it. And it's the only type of coin that the high priest would use of the first month. The 13th day of the first month. Okay? Historicism, not futurism. Remember what we said, if we could show that the 70th week fulfilled the promises to Israel, then we could topple futurism and dispensationalism. Today, I believe we've done that. Using no quotes from Ellen White, we've done it showing the Bible and the Bible alone. But check this out. Mark chapter 14. After how many days? Two days was the feast of the what? What day is the Passover on? It's the 14th. It starts at the end of the 14th day, going from the 14th to the 15th. But the, but the Passover itself starts on the 14th of the first month. Now, the way that Jews count, Jesus was in the tomb for how many days? Three. It's inclusive the way you count. So if Nisan 14 was two days away, what's the day that they're talking about that all this is happening on? Not Nisan 14, but Nisan 13, exactly the same day that Haman sold the Jews on. What happened on that day? Read down on Mark 14. And Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, went to the chief priest to what? Betray him. Judas betrayed Jesus on exactly the same day that Haman sold the Jews on. And you could figure that out just by reading the Bible. Care a little, there a little reading under the surface, studying diligently, putting these things together in your mind, and you could show very clearly that historicism is the correct interpretation and futurism is not, and we can do it as these issues come up in real time. Folks, truly, the Bible is a living document. Everything is in there that we need for this life and the next. Let me remind you, Christ is the truth. His words are truth. And they have a deeper significance than appears on the surface. All of the sayings of Christ have a value beyond their unpretending appearance. Minds that are quickened by the Holy Spirit will discern the value of these sayings. They will discern the precious gems of truth, though these may be buried treasures. So what did we learn? 
We learn that futurism is a false doctrine invented to distract the true, to distract from the true Antichrist. We know who that is. God's truth can be found in the past and is ever revealing. The word is ever alive and relevant even today, perhaps even more so. We need to wield the word in our, quote, dominant hand and dig deeper. Pray for the Holy Spirit for earnest and true understanding before opening the Bible. We need to understand what is believed around us so that we can be ready to meet false doctrines and know their weakness and to point them out, to expose them. And pray that we will always be ready to give an account of what it is that we believe. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us your word. Help us to see it for what it really is, something that can be studied like the human body and that we always must find that whatever we find in our study must agree with what we have found before to keep us away from uh, extravagant doctrines that don't line up. Help us to remember that, that in Isaiah 8.20, it says, to the law and to the testimony, those who speak not according to this word, there is no light in them. Help us to remember that whenever we open up the Bible, to ask for the Holy Spirit to help, to it, help us to interpret it, where we can see the dangers of interpreting the Bible incorrectly. Um, please be with us now in the rest of this year and also in the new year. In the name of Jesus, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.